Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. In today's episode, I'm talking to Josiah Osgood, the author of a fascinating new dual biography of Julius Caesar and his political rival Cato the Younger. The book's called Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic. And it's a story, as Osgood explains to me, that has plenty of contemporary relevance today. Josiah Osgood is a prize-winning author and professor of classics at Georgetown University in the United States. The other day, I spoke to him about a single year in Cato and Caesar's dramatic story. To learn more about this history as ever, be sure to check out our episode page on tttpodcast.com. So I'll begin this conversation, which is going to be my last episode of 2022, by saying Josiah Osgood, welcome to Travels Through Time. We've got a wonderful story in the in the league table of historical stories. This is really high at the top. Uh, your book is called Uncommon Wrath, uh, and it's subtitled How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic. We've got so much to talk about, um, and I'm going to begin by quoting a bit of your own writing back at you, because I think it sets things up really nicely. You write... It was, as the historian Sallust implied, a tragedy with two heroes. Both Caesar and Cato were flawed men of immense talent. They were masters of political stunts, the wild accusations, the awful rudeness, the never-ending schemes to mortify one another were provocative. Sometimes they were funny. There is, frankly, something delicious about their world with all of its intrigue, the swirling gossip and the skill with which politicians, these two especially, created their personas. Yet we have to reckon with the terrible outcomes of their fighting that nobody, including themselves, wanted. This is, of course, the story of Cato and Caesar. Can you tell us a little bit about their contrasting personalities, please? Yes, thank you. Caesar and Cato were both nobles. That meant they came from old political families. Uh, But the differences begin from that point on. Caesar was a patrician, meaning he traced his ancestry back to the very beginning of Rome, but the family had sort of faded, and he was very determined to make up for that. So he had extraordinary pride and even took pride in himself and his dress. He was kind of a dandy. He liked to wear a tunic that his critics anyway said almost looked like a dress. It was flowing so much. So he he loved art too. He collected gemstones. He had a fondness for pearls. It was said he could judge the weight of a pearl in his own hands. So a uh, very kind of sybaritic character, though a very tough soldier too, as I'm sure we'll discuss later on. Cato was uh, again a noble, but uh, from a somewhat newer family. And really, his trademark characteristic was austerity. And he sort of wanted to look like uh, one of those stern Romans of the good old days, you know, when the Republic had been rampaging through the Mediterranean. And therefore, for example, he uh, deliberately wore very uh, sort of shabby clothing, 
In fact, he didn't even wear a tunic at all sometimes, which was normal for Roman men. It was sort of a soft undergarment, and he would just go around with his, his ruffled toga on and sometimes not even wear sandals through the streets to sort of parade his toughness. So that kind of gives you a sense of the, the very different uh, personalities of these two, as well as, uh, as we were saying earlier a little bit, uh, their ability to sort of craft personas for themselves. And the big historical backdrop to this, of course, is the fall of the Roman Republic. And I know elsewhere you've written that the great paradox of these two first-rate politicians, um, is it fair to describe them as politicians? I suppose they can be, but they other things as well, of course. But the paradox of their appearance is that it turned out that these two great figures were just the figures that Rome really didn't need at that time. Is that correct? Well, I think it's complicated. I think I think they both had some good qualities and brought things uh, to politics that were needed, that had constituencies. So Caesar, for example, had a real sensitivity for the struggles of ordinary Romans and wanted to help ordinary men, for instance, get a farm uh, in exchange for their military service. So you could say that for Caesar. Cato, so Cato kind of seems very obstructionist, always just trying to say no, rain on the parade of everyone else. But he was very committed to reform. And there were some problems in the Roman Republic of the day. Uh, For example, corruption and governors of provinces going off there and sort of almost fomenting wars just to raise money. And Cato was trying to find solutions Uh, to those problems. Okay, let's go and have a quick look at them in terms of their oratory, because one of the great qualities of this period of history is the idea of the forum, the public speech, and the way it would whip up the crowd and maybe change the feeling or the mood. So can I ask you a little bit about them as orators? Were they both brilliant? And if they were both brilliant, what would the contrasting styles they brought to their speaking? Yeah, so they both were pretty good. And, you know, one of the maddening things about Caesar for Cato was that Caesar really was pretty good at everything. You know, he was a good general, it turned out, a a good lover. He was also a very good public speaker. And his style was was sort of very witty. He was fond of of, uh, epigrams, very debonair, sort of reflecting his personality. And he'd entertain crowds in the forum. Uh, with his charm. He probably had a great smile, too, that he brought to his public speaking. Uh, Cato is quite different. Uh, He had extraordinary lung power. And this was really one of his his great talents. He could just speak and speak and speak. and, And this became important, actually, to him politically, because what it meant is he could actually carry out what we would nowadays call a filibuster. And he could Uh, For example, in the Senate, keep talking and talking until sunset, after which point it was illegal to pass a decree. So he would talk sessions out, sometimes day after day, to prevent his enemies, Caesar, whoever it was, from pushing through some bill or some policy that he didn't like. So that gives you a little bit of a taste of of these two different uh, men as public speakers. Mm. You've got a nice phrase in the book where you say, uh, and this tallies with this idea of 
Caesar being a populist when you say that he argued that you should avoid a strange and unusual word as you would a reef. I love that. It's this idea of him coming down to the people, making that connection. Good um, advice for all of us, I think. I think so, especially to academics, I'd say. <laughs> it should be yes. put at the front of it. But one thing that they both shared, of course, we've talked about their contrast. Um, and this is something that you really stress in the book. And I think it's nice just to touch on here was an obsessiveness about their dignitas. I think that's the word pronounced correctly. This is such an important component of the self in this period of history for all Romans and especially those of high status. Could you tell us what I mean when I use that word? Yeah. So the Romans uh, in the late Republic, they seem very modern. And in some ways they are, of course, the politics. We, we recognize sort of the dirty tricks that we see nowadays, but they were quite different too. And I think this is actually one of the most important differences. You've put your finger on dignitas was, it sounds like dignity, uh, a better translation might be worthiness or even recognized worthiness. So the important thing about dignitas was that not just were you supposed to try to be first, but you wanted it to be publicly recognized. And this became very important in the quarrel between Caesar and Cato, because Caesar in particular sort of came to think that his enemies were denying him the worthy standing that he had achieved, especially through his military conquests. Mm, okay. And in terms of Cato in particular, we're going to talk about how this plays out in a very famous episode for him later on. We are going to get into the history, but I also wanted to talk about 2022 and the contemporary relevance of this story as well, because we're talking about the fall of a republic today, generally. Are you fearful for the future of your own republic at the moment? I have been, yeah. And I have to be honest, one of the experiences I had writing this book was I started it a few years ago. So of course, partisanship, polarization, these problems were on my mind. And I uh, was drawn to this material in part for that reason. But then, of course, with the January 6th riot uh, in the United States, I mean, this really felt alarmingly to me like a scene straight out of the late Roman Republic. You know, a disgruntled loser in a political election trying to stir up a crowd that we now understood that I now understand that he knew was armed um, to go to try and overturn an election. And of course, you know, there's never an exact parallel. Neither Caesar nor Cato did exactly that um, in the book that I'm, I'm writing, but there definitely are, are parallels. When politics starts to break down and institutions break down, then people feel more and more justified to reach to, to arms. So I, I am concerned. Mm. And it's, it's that partisan aspect to it, isn't it? And, and might this be a way of, of just portraying the historical context for listeners that throughout the, the period of maybe the 60s and the 50s BC, you have increased um, partisan feeling. And would you say that these two figures, the two figures in your book, Cato and Caesar, are the leaders of these factions? Of course, it's more complicated than that. But is that one way to look at it? Yes. Exactly. I think, as you quoted me saying earlier, right, it is a tragedy. And part of why I stick to that expression for these two and, and this whole period is there were competing ideas of liberty. And uh, for Caesar, 
liberty was very much about the power of ordinary Romans to elect whom they want, pass whatever laws they wanted. And then he would, as we were saying, you know, try to see that these people were taken care of. For Cato, he had a more aristocratic idea of liberty that was um, sort of really tied to the fear of the demagogue, the fear of the strong man. And this was a common fear, actually, in ancient political thought in the Roman Republic. So Cato sort of taps into that tradition of sort of thinking that you must do anything, whatever it takes, to stop a strong man from taking over the Republic. So, of course, with populism today, with the rise of of autocrats around the world, these themes resonate. and can make us sympathetic to Cato, even if we also conclude that perhaps sometimes he made mistakes or Mm. or went too far in his fears of autocracy. So let's just, I'm going to do a bit of historical sketching here, and you're no doubt going to correct me when I make some mistakes, because there's a lot, lot to be distilled really. But the fallout between them, if you can imagine them, I suppose, being two great young characters in elite Roman society, when when they were young, of course, they have this fallout around the time of the conspiracy to do with Catalin, and that's in 63. Yes. And that's when, in the book at least, you make um, the argument that they, they really turn against each other, particularly Cato turns against Caesar. But then the 10 years after that, really, there's so much to be said, but one thing that really needs to be stressed is that Caesar is off on campaign for a lot of the time. And, and this is, again, a bit of your own writing to be quoted back at you, but his achievement was summed up in the mind-numbing statistics Romans used to mark uh, martial success. In less than 10 years of fighting, 800 cities had been taken by storm, 300 nations subdued, a million people killed, another million taken captive. I mean, these are extraordinary figures. and Terrifying. Terrifying. And it just gives you, I suppose, a little glimpse of of what Caesar was up to during that time. But one thing that just struck me again, and it does strike me when I write, um, when I read about Caesar, is just the enormous energy of him is just incredible because he's, I mean, even today to go to all the places that he was going to would take um, a lot of energy and it would take a lot of transportation. Yes. We, could, we were complaining before how we can't get around London, but he seems to be able to go to Egypt and he's in Spain and then he's in Britain and then he's over in Asia Minor. Yeah, the... Adjective I would use, even though it's not perhaps a bit more modern, is demonic, right? Mm-hmm. He, he just sort of has this ability, especially in war, to suddenly appear where the enemy least expects him to. And this is indeed part of his, his military success, is that he can suddenly be where nobody expects him to, rallies the men, and uh, wins the battle. He almost always was on the offensive when he could be militarily. So at the climax of the Great War in Gaul, uh, he faces off against a very talented strategist, a Gaul named Vercingetorix. And Vercingetorix thought he devised the perfect strategy to bring down Caesar, but Caesar, through his speed, managed to prevail. And that quality, um, actually, of speed became one of Caesar's trademarks. And and even after Caesar died, people would refer uh, to Caesarian speed as a proverb. Mm. But of course, then in 49 comes that fateful moment when uh, he crosses the Rubicon, which has just become a figure of speech now applied 
to so many different moments in life, but this was uh, an event that really bears a question. So tell us what what was the significance of that when we say that Caesar crosses the Rubicon? Yeah, so Caesar had won this tremendous series of victories in Gaul, and most Romans would have found these accomplishments impressive. Uh, Cato, of course, did not. Cato actually wanted Caesar turned over to the enemy as a war criminal, essentially, for breaking a truce. That proposal didn't go anywhere, <laughs> except maybe with Cato's friends. So what happened was Caesar, after all these victories, he wanted to come back, have his triumph, get elected to a second consulship. That's the supreme office. He wanted to hold it a second time. And his enemies, Cato among them, of course, uh, really were sort of nervous. This was the fear of the strong man with the army coming back into the walls of the city, through the walls of the city. So they essentially sort of started to make maneuvers um, that made Caesar fearful for his position. And perhaps he might be put on trial, for example, or even just strip him a little bit of that dignitas that he felt he deserved. So what he decided to do when the Senate essentially passed a decree sort of declaring him an outlaw, was he took the one legion he had with him in northern Italy at the time, and he crossed the administrative boundary, separating his province back into Italy. That was the Rubicon River. So essentially, at that point, he was uh, either starting or accepting civil war. Depends a little bit on which side you're on, how you want to put that. Mm. Well, hopefully that serves as a good setup for what we're going to talk about today, because what we've done, I suppose, in the last five minutes is, is talk about 200 pages of, um, of, of historical writing at the start of your book, which is full of these fabulous characters like um, Crassus and Pompey and Clodius. These are names I'm sure that will ring many bells in people's minds. But yeah, let's, let's keep concentrating on Caesar and Cato. And let's do that um, with me asking you the question I always ask of everyone who comes on this podcast, which is if you could travel back through time, Josiah, which year would you like to go and visit? So I've selected the year 46 BC, which is a, a few years after Caesar crossed the Rubicon. So the civil war has been raging now across the whole Roman Empire. And I... In the year 46, Cato is still going, and Caesar um, had a great victory in 48 BC. Uh, he defeated the general Pompey. Pompey was sort of the, other than Caesar, the greatest general of the day. And Cato and his allies, one of their great successes was that they actually got Pompey on their side, even though earlier he had been allied with Julius Caesar. So Caesar ended up defeating Pompey and a great military victory, but then went off to Egypt, hoping to track Pompey down, who was on the run. Pompey was killed very treacherously by the king of Egypt, who was a teenager, and Caesar ended up getting embroiled uh, in a civil war, a separate civil war in Egypt itself uh, between members of the Egyptian royal family, including famously Cleopatra. Mm, a very colorful uh, bit of history there. Yes. Yeah, it was. Um, that's such an interesting episode <laughs> because it is completely uh, sort of clouded with romance now. Mm. And 
you know, many people, if they know one thing about Caesar, actually, it's this romance with with Cleopatra. And he, uh, you know, he in some ways he appears in the, at that episode in, in history, sort of in a swashbuckling vest. He gets trapped in the royal palace, makes his way out, has this great romance. Um, but it was all kind of a blunder on his part to get stuck there, mm-hmm. because and this will take us to forty six BC, the year I've chosen. It allowed his enemies, in especially in northern Africa, um, a little bit to the west and what is modern Tunisia, actually to regroup, and they built up quite a large army there. So it looked as if he'd sort of won the civil war, but then actually because of his long detention in Alexandria, in Egypt, he actually had to face a huge new army once. Again. I like the use of the word detention. It's a good one, Matt. Yeah. Um, but the um, I should also just ask you at this point a quick um, a quick point about sources because I suppose our listeners might be intrigued anyway that I've thrown a question to you about a calendar year two thousand years ago and you're able to answer with enough certainty. I know the dates are sometimes not quite secure and um, and interpretation can be can be difficult, but this is a pretty well-documented period of history, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the great pleasures of studying the late Roman Republic is in classical history, it really is about the best documented period we have, uh, in part because the events just sort of were so epic that people from the start felt the need to write this up and give their side of the story. So of course, sometimes we may be finding partisan accounts, which can create problems for us as historians. But we do have a tremendous amount of documentation. And I'll just mention for the year 46, since we're talking about that, we have uh, Caesar famously wrote accounts of his wars. He stopped, but we actually have an account of the war, the great war that would be fought in Africa, written probably by an officer of his that survives. And it's almost sort of like a diary in a way. And it kind of gives you a almost a day-by-day narrative of, of some of the events of that year. So that's a typical example of the richness and of quite our material. quite an eerie f- feeling as well. I imagine when you're reading about things which are described in, in, in some detail at such a distance, there's that dual quality of it being very close and very far at the same time. But anyway, let's go to the first of the scenes that you want to visit. We're going to give uh, you three choices, and this is your first one. Do you want to tell us when it happened and where we are? Yes, so this is the Battle of Thapsus that I've chosen for April 6 in the year 46 BC. And as I was saying, the opposition to Caesar had built up quite a large army, perhaps something like 14 legions, which on paper might be around 70,000 men. And they were in the Roman province, the small Roman province called Africa, which is modern Tunisia, essentially. And they were sort of waiting there, waiting there. They perhaps could cross over to Italy at some point, sort of anticipating what the Allies would do in World War II. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. There's sort of a, an axis. You go from Africa to Sicily to Italy. Yeah. It's very much at, at play. It's a bit of a well-worn path now. I yeah. Imagine. So Caesar, remember we've talked about his speed. What Caesar did was actually he towards the end of the prior year, 47, made one of his uh, lightning quick trips and got enough men over to establish his own bridgehead in North Africa. 
uh, but he had almost no food. He had to feed, we're told he had to feed his horses seaweed rinsed of salt just to keep the poor creatures alive. Um, so he needed to somehow to try to win a victory in North Africa against this army um, hedged around by the opposition, uh, which included, of course, forces, local African forces, as well as Roman legionaries, Roman soldiers. And you refer to these as the Republicans, generally. So I call them the Republicans. Yeah, now, of course, Caesar himself would have said, well, I'm fighting for the Roman Republic too. But for convenience, we'll call them Caesarians mm. or Caesar. And then we have the Republicans uh, mm. with Cato. So Cato actually was not much of a general um, and especially really sort of disapproved of civil war paradoxically, even though he helped cause one. Mm. So he's holding down uh, a supply for it. But the Republicans' great hope actually is another member of their coalition, um, a guy named Scipio. And if you know much about Roman history, Scipio is one of the great names of the Republic because he was the general who defeated Hannibal. And there are prophecies going around that only a Scipio will be victorious in Africa. Now, we may sort of laugh at this or find it strange, but there were ideas about generals sort of needing to have good fortune, needing to have the gods on their side. And this would be plausible to Romans, to soldiers, that somebody named Scipio, perhaps only somebody named Scipio could win in Africa. So Caesar actually very cleverly counteracted this by dragging along a very undistinguished man also named Scipio and planting him at the front of the battle line to say, okay, fine, well, we have a Scipio on our side too. Uh, really an amazing story. So it tells you a lot about the psychology of, of the Romans at war. So let's get to Thapsus. So Caesar really needs to have a victory um, because he, of his supply problems, and he wanted to end the war. And he always felt that he could, especially on a level battlefield, um, prevail over this guy Scipio. So what Caesar did was essentially he marched um, by night to a little town, a local town in Africa that was allied with the Republican side. And there was a, uh, he started to besiege it. And Scipio felt he couldn't let an ally suffer like that. So he was forced to march up there to meet Caesar. And there was sort of a narrow strip of land there separating this town from a big salt marsh. And what happened, Caesar chose his ground very carefully at this uh, town Thapsus, because what would happen, what happened at the battle is Scipio showed up and Caesar was there on this narrow strip of land. And it actually meant his uh, numerical inferiority ceased to be a problem. And Scipio started to attack Caesar on one side, but he had diverted part of his force to the other side, thinking he could kind of hem Caesar in on the narrow strip of land. But he actually fatally divided his forces. And at Thapsus, then um, Caesar, his men threw everything into it. Some of these soldiers have been fighting with Caesar since Gaul, and they won really a knockout victory. This is um, leads me to a question about being a soldier in, in Caesar's army. There's a wonderful line occasion uh, earlier on when you talk about them um, smelling of perfume, but then going into battle. So th this suggests that he really looked after them. And it seems there was a bond of affection between the two that, you know, that they were almost worth more than themselves. They were greater than the sum of their parts because he was such a great leader. Is that correct? Yeah, that was one of Caesar's boasts. My men fight well, even when they 
reek of perfume, right? Which sort of kind of sums up Caesar himself too, in a way, this dandy, but with a killer, a killer instinct. This is an interesting question. Um, he definitely had the back of his men. And he, in a pinch, would go to the front of the line, you know, hoist a shield and rally them on. And they respected him for that. They revered him. But part of the whole pressure um, in, of the year 46, which makes it so interesting to me, is that actually his men had mutinied twice now by this point during the Civil War. And the second mutiny had actually happened in Italy shortly before Caesar arrived in Africa. So part of why he needed to get this war done actually was that the veterans whom he really needed were getting sick of fighting. You know, some of them, as we said, had been with him since Gaul. They've been dragged all over the Mediterranean and really wanted a break. So Caesar couldn't prolong the war much longer or he risked losing their support. Hmm. It's very difficult to give a definitive answer to questions of the of the nature of the one I'm going to put to you in a moment, because I was trying to think, is this the moment where the Roman Republic died? Because in a way, you've talked about Pompey's defeat, and then this is like a subsequent defeat of, of a, an ever-declining rump of people who are loyal to the old way, if we can put it in such generalized terms. It's a bit... I always remember there was a description about when, when did the British Empire come to the end and said, no one knows, we just found it dead in a deck chair one day. You know, it was, it was gone. But do you think this battle, because it was of such importance and it had come after so many other defeats, was this really the end of the old guard? Yeah. So there are a couple, as you say, there's sort of a couple possible moments, right? There's the earlier defeat of Pompey, of course, Later on, a few years after the period we're talking about, the sort of heirs of both sides are going to fight some more spectacular battles in Greece. So some people would put kind of that really symbolically as, as the very end. But I think 46 has, um, there's a good case to be made for its importance, and it's a little bit overlooked. Um, one of the problems, I think, with this period of history we talked about sources, and there are a lot of them, but we do tend to view it sort of as Caesar's story. And we sometimes get a little bit impatient, I think, with all these, these battles in the Civil War. And, you know, we, we just want Caesar to, to win, right, to get to the end so we can, you know, write the last chapter of our book and, and uh, get, to, get to the Ides of March. But I, I think this was much more of a struggle um, and than we might tend to appreciate. And I think it probably loomed very large in minds as, as the moment when Caesar truly won mm -hmm. and when um, the Senate, uh, the traditional institutions of the Republic were really going to have a hard time uh, being recreated. So yeah, I, I would say this is a good candidate. Was he a magnanimous victor? Did it depend on the circumstances? And what happened to Scipio, who seems to be the defeated general of the old Republican army? Yeah, so Caesar had a strategy early in the war of clemency. And this was distinctive to civil war. And the idea was, well, if you come over to my side, I'll forgive you. And of course, that would be a way to stop war early on. It didn't quite work, of course. But it also was a way always to peel off soldiers from the other side, officers too. 
So Caesar sort of carried through with that strategy, although he did kind of have a a exception for repeat offenders. You could only accept clemency once. You know, if you tried to ask a second time, forget it. Uh, you would be killed at that point. So Caesar still has this policy in effect, um, but the diehards, people like Scipio, kind of know that this really isn't for them anymore. And what Scipio, we're told, did was he uh, fled the battlefield. So it was a tremendous rout. Um, Caesar hemmed in the enemy, Scipio's army, and uh, there was a ruthless annihilation of the army. Uh, so Scipio actually got on a ship and was sailing away. There were still some Republican forces in Spain. He was probably trying to join them. And uh, one of Caesar's allies, actually with his own little fleet, approached. And what we're told is that Scipio actually stabbed himself and then jumped off the ship sooner than be taken captive and perhaps be killed or at least taken prisoner suffered the tremendous humiliation of defeat. Hello, it's Peter here. If this week's episode has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not try a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Covering subjects from archaeology and history through to music, art and wildlife, Ace have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney marshes to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK as well as further afield. Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, Ace are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more, or to request a copy of Ace's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Brings us back to that concept of dignitas again, doesn't it? And which also leads us very nicely onto the next scene that we're going to have a, have a look at, because, of course, the other great figure in your book is not far away. So can you take us to the second of your three, please? Yes. So my second scene is just a, a few days later. It's April 10th, let's say, the night of April 10th. And we're in the old uh, capital city of the Roman province, a place called Utica. So we're in the old capital of the Roman province called Utica. And Cato has been left in charge there of food supply, uh, weaponry, sort of a, a great stronghold for the Republicans. And uh, the town itself was actually basically pro-Caesarian, especially the people in the town. They probably saw which way the wind was blowing. Uh, so Cato has um, managed to hold the town for the Republicans um, at great effort. And he's built fortifications for it. And he has the idea maybe it could continue to hold out a little bit longer, even after the news has come of this terrible loss by Scipio, uh, Caesar's great victory. So Cato quickly starts to realize that the town, its council, there's sort of a town council there, they are ready to throw in the towel. Uh, they talk a little bit about, oh, we'll carry on and fight for the Republic with you, Cato, but actually they're ready to cede to Caesar and try to 
cut the best deal they can. So what happens is uh, Cato says, fine. And he organizes an evacuation and he does it very meticulously. It's to his credit, right? You can imagine in such a situation after this devastating loss, people are trying to get away. They might seize the food supplies. Ships might be seized. Who knows what would happen? Caesar. Cato organized a very orderly evacuation and then had to decide what he was going to do himself. He might have left, but he didn't. And we can go through the night of April 10th now, which is really the scene I would be interested to have seen myself. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is fascinating because in the book, you lay it down with a good degree of detail. But I suppose if I was to use um, an adjective to describe something which is at odds, it's discordant, but it, it feels serene almost, this atmosphere. You know, you've had a massive battle not far away. There's great peril and jeopardy personally for him and the fate of everything that he's believed in. But he is serene, isn't he, Cato? Yeah, there are hints of anger that, that come through. But essentially, he did seem to be a man still very much in control of himself and, and what he was going to do. And I suppose on some level, he had been thinking about it and thinking that this, this was all a possibility. So what happened was he oversaw the evacuation. Lots of senators even got away. And then he uh, went to the baths, as Romans typically did, towards the end of the day. And then he would go to dinner with his friends, some philosophers. Cato always hung out with philosophers. He was very enamored of philosophy. His son was there, uh, a young adult. And uh, they had dinner. And one interesting detail, Cato actually was sitting for the whole time during dinner. Now, normally Romans always reclined, upper-class Romans, at a, a dinner. But uh, ever since the um, Civil War started, just about, Cato always sat sort of in mourning over the whole Civil War. He thought it was just um, excessive to be reclining. So he has this final dinner, and they sort of talk about philosophy. And then Cato went to his bedroom, and we are told, it's one of these things that's sort of too good almost to question that he was reading Plato's treatise, The Phaedo, which is about the last days, or really the last hours of Socrates. And so Cato's reading in his room, and, and we're told that his sword, he discovered that his sword that he usually had with him was missing. So he gets a little bothered about this, starts to fly into a rage. And this was one of the moments where he did lose control. He called the slaves in to question them. Um, eventually, we're even told in, in what is a very praiseworthy tradition that actually he punched um, one of his slaves in anger, um, which I think is sort of revealing, sidelight here on, on sort of the ubiquity of slavery in Roman culture for these, these aristocratic Roman men. Um, but this was important because Cato ended up hurting his hand. So eventually, the sword is brought to him. He says, well, need to be able to defend myself when Caesar appears. And then Cato is, is back alone in his room, and he takes the sword, and though his hand is wounded, he manages to stab himself uh, beneath his chest. And outside the room, they hear what's going on. He apparently knocks over an abacus, actually, that's in his, his bedroom. Everyone rushes in. There's a doctor. 
they try to help Cato and he refuses help. Very graphically, we're told, he actually sort of tries to uh, tear open the wound um, that the doctor is trying to, to stitch up. And at that moment, he died. I quite like the detail about the abacus, because of course, one thing we should say about Cato is he was very keen on accounting. He liked to know where all the money was being spent and that none of it was being taken away. But this really has, in, I don't know, the whole of classical history or ancient history, this is seen as one of the the moments, isn't it, of the ultimate stoic death, maybe, would you say? Yes. So this is why I've chosen it as a great scene. Um, it really becomes a legend. And it may sound so awesome. How could this, this possibly all be true? One point I'd make, though, just to sort of suggest that it was kind of a myth from the moment it happened was actually, we mentioned that book written probably by an officer of Caesar. So recounting the war in Africa, very friendly to Caesar, naturally. Even that book actually contains more or less a, a positive version of the story I just said, recognizing Cato's great bravery um, in taking his life in this fashion. So that suggests to me that the story, at the very least, got out immediately. Um, and it was meant to. I think that's the point, that Cato realized he'd lost. Um, there was going to be no more holding out, no more filibustering, no more delaying all of his favorite tactics. He'd use them up. So he could make one final gesture of protest, and that was to deprive Caesar of the chance to bestow clemency on Cato. And Caesar probably would have, because that would have sealed his victory, right? If he could have made Cato surrender and sort of somehow get on side, or at least defang Cato, that would have sealed Caesar's victory. So Cato robbed him of that, and that became an inspiration for later dissidents. Mm. Is there any sense in the literature of, of responses from people like Cicero, for example, to news of this? Does it have, can you trace the ripples of the news breaking across the empire? Yes. So we have Cicero's letters uh, from, from this period. And we can tell, actually, Cicero had surrendered um, a little bit earlier and had refused to go to Africa. And I think it kind of weighed on his conscience a little bit. And then this news comes of what Cato has done. And he really has, has stood up to the tyrant, as Cicero would put it and others would put it. So I think Cato's stock just soared. I mean, it's part of why this became such a problem for Caesar is that actually in, in life, Cato was a nuisance, more than a nuisance, but in death, he really um, just became more mighty than ever. And people like Cicero actually uh, started to write uh, praiseworthy pamphlets, sort of uh, eulogies of Cato that were distributed. And this uh, actually led Caesar to respond in anger. And he wrote a massive book uh, called Anti-Cato, in which he dredged up sort of every horrible story he could think of about Cato's whole life. So that gives you a sense of, of sort of just how iconic this moment quickly became. Mm. And it's interesting in a way that despite these massive armies in all these various territories that, that Caesar was 
able to deal with. And sometimes when you read read through it, it seems like he's dealing with them quite efficiently without too much trouble. It comes down to this one character who I think you say as well, it's his, his ultimate act of obstruction is his suicide because it takes away that one thing that he desperately wants. And I suppose the book Anti-Cato just shows how much animosity there was there. It really, really did get under his skin, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, for me, Anti-Cato is sort of exhibit A almost to, to prove my case, right? That this rivalry, Roman politics always had rivalries. And, and the Romans kind of welcomed them, I think, even more than, than modern politicians tend to um, nowadays. So we have to accept that. But this one, there was something just much more um, profound about this particular one that each really eventually got so underneath the skin of the other. Um, and, and the anti-Cato was the, the final rancorous uh, response of Caesar to Cato's own ultimate snub, which was the suicide. You know, mm. that, that, any, that death is better than any sort of life under the regime you will go on to establish. Caesar, mm. it will only be tyranny. Mm. It's a fascinating scene. Is it depicted, I imagine it must be depicted in art quite a lot, the death of Cato. Is there any famous um, depictions that we can go and root out for our website? Yeah, there are lots of neoclassical paintings that, that one can find. It became a popular subject in, in later art. Well, listen, from one cinematic scene to another, let's go to your third, because... It's a really nice way to round off this tour 346. Tell us where we'd like to go next or where you'd like to go next, please. Yes. So this is just an action-packed year. So we're going to go a few months forward to September of 46. And Caesar was back in Rome. He'd finished off the war in Africa and he was finally going to celebrate. And what we're talking about here actually is the famous Roman triumph. These were great military processions through the streets of Rome in which the victorious general uh, would ride in a chariot, sort of dressed up almost like a god, uh, like the god Jupiter in particular. So Caesar, I mean, it has just been a, a breathless 15 years really for Caesar, the war and call, the civil war. So he now was going to be treated actually to not one, but to four, four processions. So in order, these would be first one for Gaul, then you would have one for Egypt, for the war in Egypt. You'd have one for a victory in Asia Minor, fought during the Civil War, and you would have one for Africa, for this battle that just concluded at Thapsus. So I've picked, we can talk about all of them, they're all interesting, um, and, and various things Go wrong. I mean, these were splendid occasions, but we're told anyway in our sources, for example, at the Gallic Triumph, the first one that the axle of Caesar's chariot broke as he's riding his way through the streets of Rome. And this is sort of typical of reports of Caesar's last couple of years of life, you know, that it's almost like peripatia in, in Greek tragedy. You know, he's reached the top. He's become the first man in Rome. Nobody can dispute it. And yet suddenly things go wrong. So the axle of the chariot broke and he um, sort of barely survived the accident, at least according to, to hostile 
sources about this. So, but let's talk about the Egyptian triumph. I think this is the one that personally I would be very interested to see. It's sort of exotic, of course, always. But why would this be interesting? Well, he had to fight this little battle in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, where he'd taken up with Cleopatra. And it was typical in the Roman triumph to display captives. Um, and the more prestigious they were, the better. So Caesar actually um, paraded through the streets of Rome, the younger sister of Cleopatra, a woman named Arsinoe, who had actually tried to defeat him um, during this very nasty war in Alexandria. And we're told, actually, that Arsinoe um, sort of got a sympathetic response from the crowd of Rome. So it might be another one of these instances, at least in the historical sources, of sort of saying, well, just when everything's going supremely well for Caesar, suddenly little things start to, to go amiss for him. Mm. Um, but the triumph would have been a tremendous spectacle. It feels a bit like a Netflix season finale, doesn't it? That kind of thing. Yeah. And on to the next one. Yes. Yeah. And But there, there are wonderful details preserved about these different triumphs. So the the Alexandria triumph, uh, we're told that there was a model of the lighthouse, the great lighthouse at Alexandria, one of the wonders of the ancient world, um, that uh, was paraded through the streets to sort of give the Roman people a sense of what this, this monumental structure looked like, and that it even had a, a live fire at the top, as apparently the, the real lighthouse in Alexandria did as the signal for sailors out at sea. So I really would just um, so much enjoy the chance to see one of these Roman triumphs. Oh, and, God, yeah, you know, amazing. does it live up to my imagination? Um, is it better than, than anything I could even think of? Uh, or terrible possibility, you know, it is actually, it all look a little bit rinky-dink. And, you know, <laughs> maybe our sources have made these triumphs yeah. into, um, into more splendid occasions than actually well, they were. Let's think about it because there's a few things here which combine beautifully. You've got the the power of spectacle. You've got the the power of personality with Caesar, as you say. By this point, he must be treated like a god, pretty much. And what Rome is a is a city of a million, maybe at that point. Which is, um, I'm always struck by the the, the fact that in um, in Western Europe, at least in London, the city where we are now, it took you know, almost 2,000 years to get back to that population level. So this is an enormous place for the time, which was still, you know, a predominantly agrarian society. Um, and this one enormous city with the, the final ingredient, I suppose, which is the auspices, the, the, the kind of spiritual undercurrent of what's going on, people watching to see if there's um, any omens, if there's an axle that's going to break or if, there's going to be a clap of thunder in the sky or something. Do we know the route? Did the triumph always take the same route or was there a particular standard set or did, uh, did they make it up um, as they went along? Well, there probably was sort of a pattern, but not necessarily a precise uh, route that was followed um, the same time on every single occasion. So we, there are sources don't give us quite enough detail to know exactly exactly the route. But, uh, you know, it would always end at the Temple of Jupiter uh, up on the, the main hill in the center of Rome um, with an offering to, to the supreme god of Rome. 
So one thing that was interesting about these, these triumphs too is they would also have games. And uh, Caesar threw on the most lavish games the city of Rome had ever seen right after he celebrated these triumphs. And here our sources are just brimming with details. We're told, for example, that the Roman people for the first time saw a giraffe that Caesar brought for display. Um, so there would have been a definitely a spectacular quality to all of this that would be interesting to think about in the context of this civil war, though, too, right? I mean, that's another ingredient at this particular moment. People are glad that the fighting seems to be over, but there has been tremendous losses over these last few years. And that's kind of being hinted at. And we can perhaps talk a little bit about the African triumph, too, because we're told that Caesar displayed paintings in this triumph. It was typical to show exploits of battle. And one of the paintings, we're told, displayed the death, the suicide of Cato. And apparently the response was more sadness rather than sort of any disgust or or uh, sneering at Cato for, for having done this. So that seems to be another one of these moments where Caesar has slightly gone too far. Because I imagine even though Cato, as you describe him and as we know him, he was a seriously irritating person in a way, wasn't he? He was obstructionist. He would slow things down. He'd be the kind of person who says in the committee rule book under section, blah, 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 we can't do this. But equally, those are the people that are missed when they go. You feel, I bet there was a real sense of loss at the news of Cato's death, because in a way he did embody something which is equally as rare, maybe, as, as Caesar. Yes, Cato, Cato, you know, he wasn't a popular hero quite the way Caesar had been earlier in his career. And, but Cato had a reputation for sort of looking after the interests of the Roman people, sort of keeping the treasury full, for example. Um, Cato, at one point in his life, had actually helped pass a law that uh, subsidized grain distribution for the people of Rome. So there was some popular memory and fondness for Cato that I think we have to try to, to factor in here. Well, listen, they're both here in Uncommon Wrath, which is such a, such a, lucid, elegant telling of a really complicated bit of history. I mean, there's Caesar and Cato, of course, but as I said before, there's a constellation of really vibrant characters as well. I really, really recommend it. But I'm going to end with this one final question, which is to offer you the opportunity to pick something up from 46. If you would like to have a tangible memento of this conversation and of that year in human history, is there anything you'd like? Yes. So much as my heart sometimes is with Cato, it's actually a Caesarian memento I want. And at one of these triumphs that we've been talking about, this was one for his victory in Asia Minor, uh, Caesar had a sign paraded through the streets of Rome uh, on which was written, uh, Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. And that was his synopsis that he'd earlier sent back to the Senate of one of his campaigns. And it's just pure Caesar. And why would I want that? Well, I mean, a lot of people, I think, would want to see it. <laughs> but I would especially want to show it actually to my Latin students. Yeah. I think nothing could get them uh, more interested in the study of Latin 
than if I could show them that that placard with those immortal words. Or if you wanted to invite colleagues into your office, you could probably make them feel a little bit uncomfortable with the uh, the sign behind your desk. Well, that's a wonderful thought. Josiah Osgood, it's been such a pleasure talking about this fabulous history with you. Um, thank you for taking the time to come on Travels Through Time. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, very much enjoying my conversation with Josiah Osgood the other day. His book's called Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic, and it's out right now. As this is our last episode before Christmas, I don't want to finish without passing on on behalf of myself, Artemis, Violet and Maria, who produces all of our episodes. The very best of wishes for a happy Christmas break to you all. We'll be back with more episodes very, very soon. But in the meantime, a very Merry Christmas to you all. Goodbye.